This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, which is a podcast about cool people who did stuff. Cool stuff. It's a very specific title. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this week I've got my friend Ayo on, who is a designer, a comic book writer, a general ne'er-do-well. Say hello, Ayo. That's me. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me on. What are you famous for, Ayo? Oh, you oh, you going to put me on black? I did I I did the big gay do crime thing and now I got to live with it. I yeah. ca- I cast <laughs> I cast a long shadow upon this fallen age, and now it haunts me. It haunts me. <laughs> <laughs> and you know who else did crime? I actually can't speak to their sexuality enough, unfortunately. I tried to do that research. Oh, but also, speaking of crime, we have our producer, Sophie, also eavesdropping, if you want to say hello. Hello. Um, she has us both hooked up to electric shock collars, but she won't need them. We'll be good. Um, Maybe. I'm not afraid of anything. (laughs) So, all right. So this week, you're really excited. This week, we're talking about that 60s subculture. Okay. You know, you've heard of them. Ooh, yeah. Sound of Summer. Yeah. They rejected everything about their parents' worldview. They refused military service. They crammed together into flop houses, fought for women's liberation. The boys grew their hair long. The women cut their short, huge beard, weird sunglasses, funny hats. You know, the disaffected student movement that lounged around listening to poetry and started a lot of fires until inevitably their subculture was cracked down on, leaving only hardened revolutionaries behind who started blowing shit up. That's right. You guessed it, Io. We're talking about the young nihilists of the 1860s Russia. Yeah! (laughs) Io, you've heard of the nihilists, yeah? Oh, I've heard of the nihilists. I, uh, you know, like like any queer grew up in the Bay Area, I've dab I've dabbled in the modern nihilism myself. But as for the historical context, um, I more or less only really know they were a bunch of bunch of wicked freaks who eventually <laughs> they eventually just turned the czar into blood, and that's. <laughs> 
they were all I all I essentially know is that they were like the Michael Jordan of blowing guys up. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, big fan. I've always wanted to I've always wanted to find a book about them, but you know, life life gets in the way and it finds a way, but I was just waiting for one of my friends to have a podcast about it. <laughs> They're actually a little bit more of the Thomas the Tank Engine of blowing dudes up. <laughs> Ooh. Because Ex- explain if they really, really try, they really put work in, they might be able to eventually do it. Or wait, no, I actually don't. Is that Thomas the Tank Engine or is it the little engine that could? It's the little engine that could. They both tried really guys hard. Up. We can all agree. Okay. So the the shortest version, just to get everyone acquainted, is that there was this youth subculture in 19th century Russia called the nihilists. They were into edgy philosophy, and we'll get we'll get more into that later. But just to start understand that they wanted to reject everything about Tsarist society. And in the process, they decided the best way to do that was just to end the Tsar, which led them to kind of more or less invent political terrorism. All right. So to start us off, I'm going to talk about not my favorite of the nihilists, but I feel like a good good example one. And I'm going to do that annoying mandatory thing where I apologize for butchering basically every name I run across in this uh, coming hours. Um, but I'm going to be talking about Dmitry Karakazov. And he was born in 1840 in the Russian city of Kostroma. He was chronically ill. He, he was partially deaf. He was not a very happy man or boy, I presume. Uh, he was the child of minor nobility, but nobility is kind of meant a different thing in the middle of the 19th century in Russia. Like he's so minor in his nobility that history books always talk about how he's a commoner. Um, he was not a commoner. He was nobility, but you know he wasn't like important nobility. Growing up in a country without nobility this is all very alien to me. Okay, but so he goes off to university, and he's a nihilist, like basically everyone else in his generation. And he gets expelled from one school for rioting, then another school a few years later because he wasn't paying tuition. So we like this guy, and he joins his cousin's revolutionary organization in Moscow called Organization. Is the name of the organization that he joins. I was um, expecting something like like the the People's Revolution or the People's put whatever in. They really they yeah. really t- took a lunch break for that for the naming portion. I know. Good, good for them. I respect that. <laughs> There's like three styles of nihilist namings. One of them is like the People's blah 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 subcommittee of the Revolution of Russia or whatever. Yeah, boring. One of them is organization. And then there was a subsect of organization called hell. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> never never mind. I'm not on team organization. I'm on team hell as I have been all my life. So because organization does a lot of propaganda and outreach and education and stuff. Hell blackmails rich people, steals shit and kills people or at least tries to, there's not a lot of concrete information about hell. In fact, a lot of the history books argue about whether hell is real, which is like a lot of other books that argue about whether or not (laughs) hell is real. Okay, so so our boy Dimitri, he's suicidal, and he decides if he's going down, he's taking out the czar with him. So he heads off to St. Petersburg. His pockets are stuffed full of manifestos and leaflets to distribute to rile up the masses. And once he gets there, he keeps chickening out, and he kind of just like bums around St. Petersburg trying to rile up the masses, but he keeps getting thrown out of everywhere he tries to stay because he has no money and no ID. But a local radical that we'll talk about later who sucks gives him money to buy a gun. That's not what he sucks for. He sucks about other stuff. 
And then a doctor gives him, because good doctors at this time, the nihilist doctors, give him a poison, acid, and morphine. I want you to try and guess what cool these doctor. various things are for. Huh. Well, morphine for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking, we're talking, no, a- acid was the other sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Different around. kinds of acid. Yeah. This is mm, the yeah. disfiguring acid. Just, uh, you know, hopefully throw that in the czar's face. Pow. Right in the processor. It's actually for his own uh, face. Whoa. If he gets away and he needs to disfigure himself, he can, uh, he can put, he can acid himself. Hardcore. Cool. Yeah, and if, and if he isn't going to get away, he can take the strychnine and die. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, that's roughly. But he was essentially trying to do like one of the most elaborate suicide by cops. Yeah, could. yeah, basically, I'm going to kill the monarch and then die is kind of like his plan. But everyone's a little like, don't kill yourself, bud. But they're also a little like, I mean, kill the czar, though. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so. He waits outside the Winter Gardens, the small crowd eager to see our man, Tsar Alexander II. Tsar comes out, and Dmitri draws his gun, and he misses. Not a lot of time spent at the range. You got to understand, he just, he just got the gun. He just, uh, um, ain't, that, ain't that just the way? And so here's where I get into there's like, there's fucking propaganda everywhere all over the history of all of this stuff. And I, maybe someone in the crowd jostled him. Uh, the, the monarchist propaganda at the time wants you to believe that someone jostled him because the people, they love their father. They love the father czar. And that's why this man jostled his elbow or whatever and, and the gun misfired. The Bolsheviks on their part are like, no, everyone hated the czar and it never happened. And it was a total lie. And we don't know what happened. But maybe maybe he got jostled. Either way, he misses. And he also probably never takes a second shot in his two-barrel gun. He gets captured. The czar comes over and he says to him, what do you want? Nothing, Dimitri answers, because he's a fucking nihilist. Nothing. And hey, Dimitri, we don't make demands. <laughs> yeah, he's just. <laughs> and so I, I feel like he's like such a good character to start with because he, he literally tries to shoot the czar and says he wants nothing. Uh, so he gets thrown in the, the fortress of St. Peter and Paul, which keeps coming up over and over again in this story. It's basically the cool kids prison. Um, it's where the cool kids get sent for doing cool shit. Uh, he also then gets hanged, which is happens to way too many cool kids, including in this story. None of his pals get hanged, though. His cousin, the the sort of leader of both hell and organization, gets like mock executed. He's he's up on the gallows, and they put the noose around his neck, and then they kill his cousin, and then they get to him, and they're like, "Nah, just kidding," and they take his <laughs> no- the noose off. <laughs> Just Josh, just Joshin. <laughs> yeah, which actually means he could do that meme where he's on. He has a noose around his neck, and he says, "Like first time to the next guy." You know. Um, Ooh, if he get if he gets back up there, and he didn't, he really missed an opportunity to be funny. I know he really could have. The meme wasn't out yet, but yeah. Um, so he instead he got sent to Siberia and went insane. And actually, there's a lot of people in this story who go insane from repression, especially in Siberia. Seems like Siberia will do that to you. That that's the impression I get. That in like solitary confinement and prison and general. Yeah, that's why that's why they still do it. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. What? I thought all this was fixed now. This is a story about yeah. history, pal. There's no Russian autocrats that need killing. This is the 19th <laughs> century we're talking about. 
you're you're right. I'm get I'm getting into bummer territory anyway. Let's talk about the guys who wanted to die killing the czar. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about another guy dead really quick. The arm jostler. He gets held up as like a propaganda hero. Everyone the the monarchists are like, hooray, arm oh. jostler, whose name I didn't bother to write down. And they give him hereditary nobility. He's this commoner, and they give him hereditary nobility, whereupon he drinks himself to death fairly quickly. Okay, so now we know that nihilism involves at least attempting to shoot the czar and saying you want nothing. But beyond that, we need to talk about what nihilism is. And the, everyone thinks that nihilism means something, and everyone thinks something different than the other people who think that they know what nihilism means. Mm. The annoying thing is that all of those people are right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's so many definitions of nihilism to the point where it's kind of a meaningless word from my point of view. But anyway, let's pretend like it has meaning. Come come to the come to the same conclusion. Like in my in my youth, I think I interpreted it basically like a sort like a more active sort of Taoism, uh, for lack for lack of a better comparison. Like I was just, you know, the I it's very romantic, extreme acts as affirmations of life and knowing life wasn't meant to me- be this way, but it wasn't meant to be any sort of way. Um, but we wound up with this nightmare anyway, and there's nothing more cool than you can that you can do with life than taking revenge upon the forces that made it this way. Um but yeah, nihilism is a nonsense word. That's why I still. That's why I still like it. You actually would have done really well with the Russian nihilist with that particular definition. That's great. <laughs> oh my god, thank you. So the Russian nihilists weren't the very first time that the word nihilist was used. It was like kind of thrown around as like a pejorative to describe medieval heretics, and I guess sometimes like against various philosophers or something. But it, these are the first people to call themselves nihilists, at least in any kind of large number, and. Interesting, politically, they weren't actually necessarily incredibly radical, most of them. There were like anarchists amongst them, and some of them ended up Marxists later once Marxism hit Russia. But overall, most of them would probably be like Bernie guys and stuff today. Um, Like most of them were like progressives and social democrats. But the thing is, is that like when you live with an absolute dictator and everything is terrible, like really, really terrible. being a progressive or a social democrat actually makes you incredibly radical so radical that you might you know throw bombs at people yeah the terrain is quite different yeah um okay and actually you you did a pretty good job of defining nihilism uh their their specific thing was that basically it was the rejection of the existent rather than like it it they didn't reject the idea that something might replace the existent but that's not what they were focused on so it wasn't a like nothing better could ever happen but it's like we're not focused on that what we're focused on is destroying the existent um yeah and it wasn't just political go ahead to have to imagine that you're going to both like diagnose the problem and come up with the cure is kind of like kills a lot of people in in their like revolutionary thought like at the beginning of them sort of thinking that way um oh yeah because they don't have all the answers yet well i mean what well you know this sucks but what else am i supposed to do oh this idea could turn out even worse and that's 
I mean, it's imagining that one, a human has like a lifespan far longer than you do. We're not elves who are going to like be able to build the world after <laughs> uh-huh. after the Great War happens or or whatever. Um, but you don't need to really be like a genius or have a degree to be like, wow, this shit, shit's really fucked. And I think we should all be willing to take the chance that we maybe won't know exactly where to go after destroying this old order. And sounds like that's what they were all about. And I'm down with it, especially when you have an absolute monarch like in Russia, which seemed to be kind of for that time period, really a really unique sort of monarch uh, on the world, on the world stage. Yeah. As a, as far as ordained by God dudes who can do whatever they want go. Yeah, he managed to hold on to some autocracy past uh, past pretty much everyone else, at least in uh, at least in Europe. Um, they were they were good at that. Those was it the Romanovs? You'd think I'd know because I just did all this research and I'm doing a podcast about it. But I'm actually Ro- less focused Romanovs. on yeah. I'm less focused on the bad people. Well, in my mind, the bad people are the czars and the good people are the trying to kill the czars. So I'm more focused on them. But um, that's nice for a change. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but okay, so it, it was a rejection not only of the political order, but it was also a rejection of basically Russian society and its like standard and ethics. And it was a rejection of the Orthodox Church, but it actually wasn't necessarily atheistic. It was more agnostic in character, which also was kind of cool to me. Um, and it rejected social norms and gender relations. It also rejected high fashion. And I put in here my notes that this is the place where if I really wanted to, I could talk about dialectics and how it's a dialectical process, but I'm not going to. You know, I thought you were going to say, if I really wanted to, I could talk about crass because because Im- <laughs> immediately I was just like, hell yeah, like crass. Yeah. So crass is more interesting <laughs> to me than dialectics, but yeah, snoo- snooze fest. <laughs> I will say that, uh, okay, one of their main influences was um, before the anarchist author Bakunin was an anarchist, he was just a a revolutionist. And in 1842, he wrote an essay called Reaction in Germany. And he has the following quote, which is one of the more interesting, I think, quotes of Bakunin and of 19th century politics. Let us therefore trust the eternal spirit which destroys and annihilates only because it is the unfathomable and eternal source of all life. The passion for destruction is a creative passion too. Hell yeah. He got he got some <laughs> stuff right. Yeah. He didn't get everything right. And we're actually going to get into... Some stuff he got wrong in this episode. Oh, good. I I love to dunk on that (laughs) dead old man. Most of what's written about the nihilists talks about where they are in terms of political philosophy. Um, But as far as I can tell, the average nihilist really didn't care about that. Most actively rejected political participation. And I think it's like less useful to talk about like, here's how the nihilists react to the young Hegelians and the relationship between materialism and idealism. But instead, I'm going to argue that the more interesting way to describe the nihilists might be they all wore blue tinted glasses day and night and the men grew their hair long and the women cut their short and they hung out in graveyards and they got into fistfights with seminary students. Because first and foremost, at the very beginning, it was a subculture or a, a counterculture and it was, a, it was a fucking interesting one. And they, they basically, they were trying to like live their lives and take agency over their own fate in a way that had been denied to them which of course eventually led to assassinations and bombings and basically inventing political terrorism in the modern sense because they were just trying to live their weird lives. And so I'm going to I'm going to split 
nihilism into into two parts and i'm stealing this uh this dichotomy or, or way of understanding it from um an indigenous nihilist anarchist named aragorn who was alive until very recently r.i.p yeah and he he called the first part of it foundational nihilism and then that developed into revolutionary nihilism so those are the those are the two parts and the the revolutionary nihilists they dropped a lot of the subcultural fashion uh, but they they kept and intensified the rejection of the current order. And, okay, so just like the word nihilism itself, who was and wasn't a nihilist is really blurry and really up to subjective analysis. Some of the people who are in this story who I'm going to call nihilists are going to be called nihilists by history and, and all of these things, and they might have hung out with nihilists, but they, they might have personally been like, well, I'm not a nihilist, I'm a blah, 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 right? The important thing is the real nihilist wouldn't give a shit if you describe them that way or not. Yeah, I, I think that if, that's true. If we can get if we can get a medium in here to ask them, that's yeah. how we'll know. Yeah. Yeah. Sophie, actually, uh, could we get a medium for part two at least? Just one. I'd love to have differing opinions. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like if we're gonna if we're gonna do this, there should be at least three so that we have, you know, a All committee right. on this. Okay. That twink who has a uh, Netflix show where he talks to dead people. Um, and Miss Cleo, turns out I don't know many mediums. <laughs> the Long the Long Island medium from from really bad cable TV. And the Long Island medium. Get, the, get them in here right away. I'll wait. <laughs> so while we're waiting, <laughs> let's do some background on Russia. Okay, yeah. I actually feel like this does matter. And... Because one of the things I learned while while doing this research is that all of the things that tie into it and create the context are so important to understand why they're rejecting what they're rejecting. And the other thing I've learned while doing this research is that everyone has an opinion about Russia and everyone's opinion about Russia absolutely flavors what they think about what actually happened and what people thought and what mattered to whom and even just the objective facts of what happened. And it's it's all partisan. Basically, everyone who writes Russian history has like an opinion about what happens in 1917. I also have an opinion about what happens in 1917, but I'm not going to talk about my opinion about 1917, and I'm trying to take the nihilists on their on their own as much as I can. I don't have an opinion on 1917, but that's because I'm humble. <laughs> that's why we brought you on. Yeah, <laughs> and I and I can't abide arguing with tankies on Twitter. <laughs> Where, where I would inevitably develop more opinions on it. Yeah, see, that's 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 my fault. That's my grand fault. You got you gotta <laughs> life. Life is too short. That's what I'm trying to learn. In this rudderless world, you cannot you cannot content yourself with arguing with tankies on Twitter. It's not good for you. Not good for you, Margaret. Uh, but you trying to remove my one source of joy in this world. Okay, so. <laughs> I'm going to talk about serfs. That's where you thought. I assume this would go. Understanding serfdom, I feel like, is important to understanding everything that's going on in Russia. And basically, a serf is like kind of halfway between an enslaved person and a peasant, though, to be honest, they're closer to an enslaved person than a peasant. It's basically the idea that there's people who belong to the land, and whoever owns the land owns the people who are on the land. If you sell the land, the people stay with it. If you're born a serf, you die a serf. They are the property of the owner uh there's also house serfs and they don't they're like don't even have any land to work on and actually russia experimented with basically factory serfs which let urban rich own their workers as well 
Yeah, they're really mm-hmm. um, ahead of the curve on this. And the the one advantage of being a serf is that you supposedly aren't supposed to be able to be ripped apart from your family and sold to a neighbor because you belong to the land instead. And there are ostensible limitations on what owners could do to enserfed people. I don't know the polite way to say someone who was made a serf by society. Somebody yeah. who's surfed up. Um, and so, okay, so... But the thing, one of the things that's most interesting to me about this is that everyone talks about how backwards Russia is. And Russia was very backwards. They, they got rid of all of these things way later than everyone else. They still got rid of serfdom before the U.S. got rid of uh, chattel slavery. Um, and back in the day in Russia, like everywhere else, used chattel slavery. Um, but by 1679, the field slaves were converted into serfs. And in 1723, the the house slaves were converted into serfs. And this didn't really change that much for most of the people who had been enslaved. Um, some laws got put into place. No one was really enforcing them. People still got sold internationally. There was a lot of... It wasn't like a good deal. It wasn't a good thing to be a serf. Uh, they, the way they lived, though, was that they basically lived in communes. They, they would be part of their household, which would be part of a village, which would be part of a commune. And the communes were sort of autonomously run and very egalitarianly run. They would be run in such a way where like the farmland was divided up into strips. I think it's called strip farming, which is very different than like strip mining, for example. And basically, so that way, by having these like long strips of land, everyone gets some decent land. And so a commune's farming wasn't everyone farms the communal fields. It was like everyone farms their little chunk. And... But those are arranged so that everyone has equal access to the ability to produce. And what happens at the end of that is then their owners take about a third of everything they produce and also make them do extra labor. About a third of their labor is also getting used for whatever purposes. And once again, you run into weird bias in terms of everything you read about it because Everyone wants to like compare everything to U.S. slavery, and usually their goal is to kind of downplay chattel slavery in the U.S. Like everyone's trying to be like, oh, everyone had this stuff. It's fine. <laughs> it was a rough time all over. What do you want? What do you want? Yeah, from exactly. Me? Um, I mean, I mean them. And uh, and they're just really different, and they shouldn't be compared. It's like my primary takeaway from all of the work I've done about it. And yeah. The only, the only take I've ever heard uh, that I was like, huh, all right, point is they were like, well, you know, at least surfs got like a season yeah. off compared compared to now. Oh, yeah, that's true. There is the whole like feudalism actually leaves you with more free time than modern capitalism. What yeah. are you talking about that I have to do something after yep. this call? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So. But people in Russia knew that serfdom was bad, and for a lot of different reasons. Mostly, people thought serfdom was bad because it didn't really allow like industrialization and capitalism, and for everyone to like compete on the world stage. It's not that they actually cared about how people lived, and maybe like people shouldn't like own a guy, you know, like just overall, like as a general rule. That's like not where people were at. But some people were were there. A good bedrock to build on. People shouldn't yeah. own guys. Yeah, this is a broad categorization. And so in 1855, Tsar Alexander II comes into power after the death of Nicholas I. 
Nicholas I was like a classic tyrant and Alexander II was an absolute monarch, but he was like a reformer. And his whole thing is he kind of, people try and paint him as like a reformer because he like cared about people and he probably cared about people a little bit, but he basically, as far as I can tell, he was a reformer because he didn't want everyone to overthrow him. And he thought that maybe some reforms would keep that from happening. And then also he really was aware of how backwards Russia was compared to everyone else. And so he wanted to bring some capitalism and industrialization to the picture. Yeah, it's it it always struck me reading world leaders from the worst possible standpoint um, that one, he was embarrassed for his country, as well he should be. And he just wanted to make a big show of these phantom pangs of a non-existent conscience that he kept getting. Yeah, I like that phrasing a lot. So in. In 1861, I keep almost saying 1961, but the, the century that matters here is 1800s. Um, the, in 1861, he, he frees the serfs with a, a stroke of his pen. And when he does this, he basically like locks them all into, into debt and into continued servitude. But just from a capitalist point of view, instead, uh, he, the peasants now owe him a lot of money for the land that they are given, which is the worst land. And then he is like, gives the, the money to the nobles who have lost their property or whatever. And uh, so serfs got a really shitty deal, except kind of interestingly, the, the serfs in Poland got a way better deal. And the reason is that the czar hated Poland and wanted the nobles to suffer. So he um, made the serfs have a better time there, which really goes to show like he does not care about people. Uh, but he he sees the nobles as more representing Poland than the majority of Poland, and hey, it yeah, worked out. Yeah, um, and so these were called redemption payments, and they were the serfs owed them for their freedom until 1907, almost 50 years later. Which, of course, if you know about like the the Haitian Revolution when Haiti won its independence in 1825, they wound up owing France and their former enslavers what amounted to 21 billion dollars in today's money. So this is like a a thing that they like you know, people like doing. It's a, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. We want you to stay poor and locked into this particular economic system. And also the czar didn't bother freeing the state-owned serfs until five years later. And we too live under a system of capitalism. Here's some ads. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. And we're back, and we're talking about the serfs, and we're talking about how Tsar Alexander II sort of freed them. And he stayed an autocrat, but he gave himself the name the Tsar Liberator, and people were like, okay, cool, constitution? And he was like, no, you don't understand. Uh, I was chosen by God to rule Russia. You can't rule yourselves because, you know, autocrat. Oh, you don't want to get God angry. No. Yeah, that's true. Imagine what would have happened. And that's cold chill runs through my spine. Yeah. Hell would have been involved somehow. (laughs) Can't avoid that forever. Yeah. But back to our story. So there were other there were other um, reforms that he made that also mattered. Um, He overhauled the taxes to encourage entrepreneurship. A state bank was founded. There was more local governance in the form of uh, what were called the Zemstva, which is the plural of Zemstvo. And. They also kind of more importantly to our story, the universities were more universities were opened. Women were allowed to audit some classes. They weren't allowed to attend, God forbid, but they were allowed to go learn a little bit. And public education became available to more people. And for a brief period of time, they universities were even given some autonomy about what they taught until people started learning stuff and thinking for themselves and putting on scary, scary blue glasses and also starting fires everywhere. So that, that'll happen. Yeah. You got, got to get rid of the blue glasses salesman first, <laughs> then the university professors teaching, I don't know, anything other than flatters stuff. Yeah, second. basically. And so everyone is convinced oh, wow, these serfs got a bum deal and they're going to know it and they're going to revolt. And that's what everyone is like, that's going to happen. And so that's the stage onto which steps our heroes, the nihilists. Hooray. Oh, there they are. Oh, all right. Mew, pew. That's, That's my air horn. It probably started in 1855, about six years before the serfs were freed. It did not have a name. They did not have a name for themselves. They were just a subculture. And they were mostly young students. Some of them came from the upper classes. Uh, people had long had access to higher education. And they were like revolting against their parents' generation. Like the whole thing has a lot of fuck you dad energy. But the bulk of them were this class called the Rasnochinsi, which I might be pronouncing correctly and I might not be pronouncing correctly. And which could most easily translate at the time to the lower middle class or the, the classless people, as it's sometimes called. A hundred years earlier, it had meant the miscellaneous minor nobles, but by this point, it actually doesn't mean nobility at all. This is the lower middle class. This is like the children of clerks and like clergy and low-ranking officers and people who had previously not been able to be students. But now they were allowed as commoners to go to university and people were fucking into it. And so this is where you first get the like lower class intelligentsia. 
And everything about this subculture was rooted in the fact that like we are like science nerds. We are intelligentsia. Everything about their aesthetic, their mannerisms. Um, it's like if the hippies were just nerds. I'm putting together some dots with some people in my life. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe that ought to get cut. But whatever, leave it in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've, we've all met these uh, people, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and they, they were actually revolutionarily subculture, subcultural. People kind of talk about the subculture as just like this thing that they had to go through before they could like actually do the real work of politics. But the, the subculture itself got them facing constant repression because they were, you know, wearing the wrong clothes and like basically scaring people by their existence. There's some like chicken and the egg question about like, did they start setting fires around St. Petersburg before they were repressed or after they were, you know, like, um, like we don't, I, I totally don't know exactly how it maps out, but as as somebody who hasn't always been politically active, but who has been young before, young people love to start fires. Like, who who knows? Who cares? Yeah, totally. Is there information about, like, if it started in a... I've always pictured um, these people starting as, like, a... I learned about it as, like, a, a little bit of a subculture, but it's it's surprising to see, like, the parallels between, like, any other subculture that mm -hmm. I know about, except they like had a more less like going to shows or doing art or getting drunk together thing and more like going to kill cops together thing. Um, did it center around a specific city at first or was it just a what like this thing that settled over Russia where where a lot of the youth were like, you know what, fuck this. And they all kind of came to the same fairly obvious conclusion which is burn shit down <laughs> well okay so they actually did meet at shows and and all of that stuff too and i'm going to talk about in a minute yeah same um, as it ever was same yeah. as it ever no was. exactly it's all same as it ever was i personally can't point to a specific city where it started because it started so amorphously there was about six or seven years before it even had its name where it was starting to develop uh i only personally read more about the the nihilists of saint petersburg and moscow and so my like instinct is that it more started there, but I honestly couldn't tell you. But I am gonna. But now I'm gonna tell you about their subculture and how fucking cool they were. And Fuck yeah, cool. First, I'm gonna quote. Let's go. <laughs> I'm gonna quote from an anonymous article called "Dress to Kill: Illegal Dandyism" that came out about ten years ago. And to be clear, it came out in a magazine that I edited, but I didn't actually write this. A lot of people think I wrote it, but I did not. Um, this is how I first learned about the nihilists was the, the person who submitted this article to me. And unfortunately, some of the information in this article is a little bit harder to track down with other sources. This particular article, uh, because the author comes from, a, has more access to an Eastern European context and non-English sources. Okay, so the nihilists. They fancied wearing blue sunglasses even at night and wearing long black silk jackets cut in a style of the priestly robe but adorned with intricate designs. Young nihilist men kept their hair long and unmanaged, while the women streaked their hair with lye and braided cotton fuses into it. Both male and female nihilists took to adorning their clothes with dried flowers pilfered from the graveyards where they often met. The men carried straight razors sheathed on their belts in case they decided to take their own lives at any moment, and the female nihilists strolled the streets of St. Petersburg with lockets filled with poison, deadly sharp hat pins, and gentlemen's walking sticks. Both male and female nihilists smoked with elongated and oriental ivory cigarette holders. 
And there's some stuff in there that doesn't come up elsewhere about specifically anything that's about ornamentation, because a lot of their stuff that you read about now is about how they rejected ornamentation. But as I'm going to get to in a little bit, they also really consciously rejected ornamentation in this way that actually meant they put in an enormous amount of effort into looking like they weren't putting effort into what they did. It's all that's all really exciting to hear about because from like the sort of cursory understanding I had about them before, which is why I like brought up crass earlier, uh, because I heard like they just dressed in straight up like black button ups and black pants and black shoes and wore black sunglasses at all times to hear that they had a had some panache and some flair to it. Hell yeah. I love these. This sounds like sounds like my friends. I love them. The stealing of the dried flowers from like tombstones. <laughs> yeah, is so edgy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, braiding cotton fuses into your hair. I love that. <laughs> I wrote that down. Like, remember to do start doing this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the other thing that the same article talks about that again, because so little of the English language stuff focuses on their time as a subculture. I couldn't find as much information about, but apparently seminary students would come out and fight them in the graveyards and in the streets. And if the seminary students won, they'd cut the men's hair and and like shred the women's masculine clothes. They don't quite say what the the nihilists would do if they won. I don't know. Um, And but uh, later, a different person is quoted as saying that the czar, if he saw a nihilist or any young student at all, he shook with fear. I've I've heard that one and oh boy yeah it's it's more than a hundred years ago but I get a lot of delight thinking about that 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 na- nasty old fuck yeah. just shaking in his boots when he saw somebody in sunglasses yeah which I mean it, it makes sense because a lot of them tried to kill him and eventually some of them even succeeded spoiler spoiler alert Oh, yeah. Sorry, everybody. Uh, sorry, Czar fans. Uh, but he gets he gets blowed up. He gets exploded. Um, di- how many people have tried at this point? Do do we know? I guess we're we're sort of talking about this like, is early, a pretty wide period. This, yeah. And actually, what I'm talking about right now is before anyone has tried. Uh, the first attempt on the Czar's life. Is 1866. Other than Dimitri? No. This is that is, uh, Dimitri? Yeah, he's the first one in 1866, which is a little bit after the initial stuff that I'm currently talking about. Oh, okay. He actually marks the sort of end of the foundational period of the nihilists and starts the revolutionary period of the nihilists because he takes it to the shooty phase. But so for now, they're all crazy radical students. And... The, the blue sunglasses they wore weren't sunglasses, it turns out. I had to do it. It took me a while of digging through to fi- figure this out. They were reading glasses. When reading glasses were first invented, <laughs> they were mostly blue and green because it was seen as favorable to the, the health of the eyes. And so it's, they were all walking around wearing affectatious fake reading glasses all the time because they're so serious about their studies. They're so they're so serious about their studies, but they're also very like for people who don't care about anything, they're really serious about looking cool. Yeah, exactly. And their uncombed hair, they were really into like going ungroomed. It was actually one of the ways that they were distinguished from some of the younger, the older, the prior to them radical subcultures that were very into like careful grooming. The uncombed hair and the grown-up beards and stuff was just because they didn't want to waste their time grooming because they were too busy doing serious science stuff. 
Um, and that's cute. I love him. Yeah. That's like when I was when I was a little a little a little nasty train hop and oogle. I would always keep some like nice ish, some nice clothes in my bag for. You know, you I needed it a lot. Yeah. Like I was exhausted and I'm in a hotel like, oh, my friend's going to show up later. Can I just hang out in the lobby and ca- catch a few Z's for three hours or, or whatever? Mm-hmm. And it's worth it. But I respect the dedication to just like, fuck it. I'm going to look like a rat king just walking around. Yeah. Walking around St. Petersburg all day. Yeah. And that's that's what they did. And they, they also I want the czar to see me coming <laughs> and tremble in his boots. And they, they were doing some serious science stuff. Uh, you don't build bombs without learning chemistry. And one of them kind of invented rocket science, but we'll get to that later. Uh, oh, my. Oh, wow. This is a found. This is going to be a foundational history podcast. Yeah. I've looked for books about these guys before and I just haven't found any. It's glad you. Well, thanks. <laughs> um, OK. And they were also quite into the arts and especially they looked westward to the, the Enlightenment of Europe uh, to quote from that same source, illegal dandyism. Since most nihilists came from educated families, they often had musical training and various instruments. They would meet in bone amphitheaters, the holding crypts in Russian Orthodox cemeteries, and play decadent music from France and England. They read aloud from Western poems smuggled into the country. They spoke together in an argot of Russian peppered liberally with nonsense slang as well as French and English words. And their their fashion choices were influenced by the West as well. They one of the things that they wore, way more than like a button-up or something like that, they all wore like Scottish tartans uh, or their interpretation of them. Oh. They call it wearing a plaid and it was basically a sort of shawl. And they also, a lot of them wore like funny Italian military hats. This sort of goes to the non, like it's it's this stuff that was fashionable like decades earlier at various points. Um, and it's because of random popular books from the West. And so it's, it's really got that like more of that like old punk vibe of wearing like military surplus. You know, when I was a teenager and I'd walk mm. around in my like German army surplus coat that was three sizes too big and stuff. And the the women's the women's fashion in particular was a, a huge departure from the style at the time. They avoided corsets and crinolines, which are hoop skirts. I had to look that up personally because everyone I know just calls them hoop skirts. And instead they went for for plain garb. And they were completely obsessed with this anti-fashion and they put hours and hours of work into looking like they didn't put effort into it at all, which again, yeah, anti-fashion yeah, matches so perfectly with my, my punk friends. And yeah, I've listened to the sex pistols. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So one historian who wrote about their fashion was this, this woman, uh, Vera Broida, who in her 1977 book, Apostles into Terrorists, Women in the Revolutionary Movement and in Russia of Alexander II. It's a long book title. And okay, so Vera herself was really interesting. Um, like something that every time I research Russian history, I learn, run across things like this. Her mother, the historian's mother, had been exiled uh, for fighting the czar and then later was executed by the Bolsheviks for being a social democrat. Um, so it goes. But Classic Bolsheviks. But Vera described the nihilists like so. The true Russian nihilist wore his baggy trousers tucked into unpolished and clumsy boots. His peasant blouse of cheap cotton was held around the waist by a leather strap. A so-called plaid or rug was hung over one shoulder. The hair was worn long and the face overgrown with a beard and further obscured by dark glasses. 
Many of the students were indeed very poor and underfed, and this contributed in some measure to their drab appearance. The female counterpart, a very new phenomenon, also dressed with deliberate plainness. Heavy boots showed under somber black skirts topped with high-necked blouses. The hair was worn short, and there were, of course, dark glasses, and yet worse, cigarettes. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Later, I'm going to talk about this, uh, this would-be assassin named Vera Zasulich. But first, I'm going to talk about the clothes she wore to go commit the assassination. She planned it out really oh, yeah. carefully because she knew she'd be photographed. And this is a quote from Margaret Maxwell's... Oh my God, Vera. <laughs> I know. I love it. I her. know. This is a quote from Margaret Maxwell's book, Naraniki Women. It's self-quoting from a woman who saw Vera. Vera wore a shapeless gray outfit that might be best described as a good-sized piece of linen and in the center of which had been cut in a hole for her head and on the sides two holes for her arms. This piece of linen was held in with a narrow belt, but its edges hung down on all sides, fluttering in the wind. On her head there was something, not a hat, but more like a pie, made out of cheap gray material. On her feet were wide, clumsy-looking boots that— she later explained to me, had been specially made for her according to her own design. Her linen body covering, of course, had no pockets, so in place of a handkerchief, she simply picked up the edge of one of the hanging corners of the material. If you brought this up <laughs> to one of the Looney Tunes animators, they would say, too cartoony. <laughs> yeah. What? I'm trying to make a show here. Come I on. would love to get a visual of the pie on her head. <laughs> she's literally wearing a potato sack and a pie on her head. <laughs> that she spent yeah. hours and hours working on and had custom made for her. Yeah. And she, and like she wasn't like, maybe I deserve pockets. Yeah. No, I know. The women's lib didn't go to the God. right places. Okay, so reactionary. <laughs> still not there. No, it's true. We still don't have pockets. I got to wear a dang fanny pack with all, with all my dresses. <laughs> I was about to say I wear a fanny pack with my dresses. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So reactionary sources like to focus on how it's like slumming nobility, but Soviet sources seem to focus on how they're all commoners. And basically the best I can tell is both true. It seems like a bell curve. The nihilists were mostly lower middle class and then there are outliers in both directions. Does it seem like the Soviets are, this might be a little mm -hmm. off topic, but does it seem like the Soviets are trying to discredit them a bit because they do have a tendency like pre-revolution everyone working towards revolutionary ends gets a little bit of credit for stuff yeah no actually i think the soviets like them and generally they kind of want to mm -hmm. call them naive for like caring about subculture and caring about not having a hard party line and like having syncretic politics and stuff that i'm gonna talk about a little, a little bit about later but overall, the, the Soviets want to bring them in and be like, oh, these people totally would have loved Bolshevism, uh, which does not map to my understanding of these people's beliefs. Uh, some of them, I'm sure. Yeah. Absolutely some of them. Um, Vera actually ends up a Menshevik. Um, we'll talk more about her later. Mm. There's a lot of people named Vera. In this case, I mean the one who I just described with the pie on her head. Yeah, potato sack Vera. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's actually really cool, but we could call her potato sack Vera. Um Okay, and then the other thing, though, is that the, the lower class folks were less likely to be as obsessed with the fashion, the high anti-fashion, and overall dressed a little, like, were more into it for the rejection of society and a little less, like, particular about the clothes. Um, but when cops would try and infiltrate, just to make this even more like punk, when cops would try and infiltrate, they would do two things wrong that would get them outed. One 
is they would try and dress the part, but they would like have the wrong size glasses and everyone would be like, ha ha ha, that person's obviously a cop. Look at the size of their blue glasses. And and then later, um, a Russian anarchist of the time, Kropotkin, uh, pointed out that informers about informers, he might possess the perfect nihilist slang and manners, but he could never assimilate the sort of nihilist ethics which had grown up amongst the Russian youth. Spies can imitate anything else but ethics. And obviously they did get infiltrated here and there, but this is how they tended to catch people. Mm-hmm. There, yeah, there, there are still a lot of stories about, you know, the good, the good infiltrators who really studied their craft or like, mm-hmm. you know, pe- people who just may not have been paying close attention, but still the story, oh, infiltrators by and large just really make clown (laughs) clown shoes yeah (laughs) speaking of clown shoes there are things that you can buy (laughs) other things that you can buy or consume in other ways are the things that you'll hear about in these ads me focus features presents back to black i want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles experience the music and her story know this i ain't no spy girl like never before that's my daughter that's my amy on the big screen i want to be remembered for just being me amy winehouse back to black directed by sam taylor johnson rated r under 17 not a minute without parent only in theaters may 17th this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a purdue global degree you create opportunity for yourself your family and your future it's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. And we are back and we're talking about nihilists. I guess you knew that because you probably didn't start listening to this episode about halfway or two thirds through. Welcome person who started halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> we're glad you're Hi, here. Hi friends. Welcome to the show. Way to, ru- way to run against the grain. <laughs> okay. So the nihilists, right? They, uh, the, the whole thing was actually uniquely Rus- Russian. There's a lot of talk about how they look to the West and that's true, but they, they actually really influenced Russian literature and art and Kind of everything. Obviously, the politics, too, because they fundamentally changed, well, who's alive and who's not and things like that. But to, to quote Kropotkin again about them, 
It is nihilism again in its various manifestations, which gives to many of our writers that remarkable sincerity, that habit of thinking aloud, which astounds Western European readers. And all right, and to 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 sum it up with one more Kropotkin quote about the nihilists. This one's a little this one's just about their belief structure. First of all, the nihilists declared war upon what may be described as the conventional lies of civilized mankind. Absolute sincerity was his distinctive feature, and in the name of that sincerity, he gave up and asked others to give up those superstitions, prejudices, habits, and customs which their own reason could justify. He refused to bend before any authority except that of reason, and in the analysis of every social institution or habit, he revolted against any sort of of more or less mass sophism. He broke, of course, with the superstitions of his fathers, and in his philosophical conceptions, he was a positivist, an agnostic, a Spencerian evolutionist, or a scientific materialist. And while he never attacked the simple, sincere religious belief, which is the physiological necessity of feeling, he bitterly fought against the hypocrisy that leads people to assume the outward mask of a religion, which they repeatedly throw aside as useless ballast. The life of civilized people is full of little conventional lies. Persons who hate each other, meeting in the streets, make their faces radiant with a happy smile. The nihilist remained unmoved and smiled only for those whom he was genuinely glad to meet. All those forms of outward politeness, which are mere hypocrisy, were equally repugnant to him, and he assumed a certain external roughness as a protest against the smooth amiability of his fathers. He saw them wildly talking as idealist sentimentalists, and at the same time acting as real barbarians towards their wives, their children, and their serfs. And he rose in revolt against that sort of sentimentalism which, after all, so nicely accommodated itself to the anything but ideal conditions of Russian life. Yeah, basically they were like crass. Hell yeah. Try to bring it back around to the band. Bunch of penny rimbaugs, but like <laughs> I've always pictured pictured them in a back room of some bar somewhere, like some guy named like St- Stale Dale and the Widowmaker <laughs> smoking cigarettes above a bunch of black powder, making making round cartoon bombs. That's not so but far off. Makes it sound makes it sound so romantic, and that's how I want to. Yeah, I mean that's that's yeah. Um, it's my interpretation of it. Okay, and so they they. They tried their hardest to bring this rejection of the the sort of barbarity of polite society into their interpersonal relationships. Nihilist women left their husbands unless they loved them. They refused marriage without love, except, of course, when they organized marriages of conveniences, which they did all the time. Women at the time apparently had their passports controlled either by their fathers or their husbands. So nihilists would just marry each other like willy nilly in order to give women their own passports back, basically. Um, Wow. I said I said it before, but same as it ever was. Yeah, totally. I've gone to more green card marriages than I have real marriages. <laughs> but I love weddings, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and usually the parents will pay for it either way, which is also another reason that they used to get married, was in order to get their parents' money in order to build bombs. Hell yeah, get your parents to throw, throw you a nice party and make some bombs along the way. Yeah. Win-win. Yeah. Uh, they refused chivalry towards women. They thought it was condescending. They were blunt and terse and told hypocrites and bureaucrats alike what was on their mind. And they were also, okay, they were really into adultery, except not. They were like, adultery is chill and good, but they were all a bunch of prudes. And they were like, <laughs> they all wanted to be free love polyamorous or whatever, but they were all like really obsessed with like asceticism and self-denial. So they like just didn't really hook up. Yep. 
And they would move four to five people into a room and they would blow all their family's money starting workers' cooperatives and the men would refuse to join the military and women like ran to the cities to learn professions and avoid domestic labor. And they also spent apparently most of the year 1862 setting fire to everything all over St. Petersburg. That sort of brings up something that a few weeks ago I was on my friend's podcast, Gender Reveal, and we were talking about you have other podcasts. How... Ooh, I wish you didn't have to find out this way. It's fine. If the nihilist can handle it, I can handle it. <laughs> we, we were talking about how there's like queer history is a fairly recent thing. And it's not something that was talked about even in like fairly radical circles and certainly didn't survive to the modern era in, in tons of instances. You really have to dig to find it but you can find the evidence in it of uh, you know fr free love movements and mm -hmm. the and women's lib movements and like places that were while while it totally makes sense that these would be like a bunch of like self-serious prudes mm -hmm. um it stands to reason they still had like very progressive views about like what sex and romance could look like in the first place, which is why I choose to sort of interpret a lot of the historical like anarchist or just like freak, like anti-state movements as things that had that couldn't be described as queer, but had certainly queer currents running through them that we just have like, very little surviving texts of i just wanted to yeah sort of uh sort of point point that out as maybe it's my fanfic but i think i would i would love to hear a historian argue with me about it i'm hard to argue with i would love to watch you argue this story about it because that makes honestly a lot of things kind of fit into place when you just start understanding queerness especially the way it's like not only erased from history but like not talked about even at the time you know e yeah, yeah, we even like less than 100 years ago, it's really hard to come up with instances where people talked in depth about it unless somebody was being particularly brave up until like AIDS really made it, you know, it's not it's not a I wouldn't paint it as a as a good thing, but it really made it impossible to ignore in the historical yeah. context anymore. That is sort of where where it explodes on the historical stage as a undeniable fact. And while and I'm sure that there were people like this who I don't think that there was a lot of homophobia amongst the amongst people who didn't give a shit about anything like the nihilists right. um, or transphobia or a lot of uh, enforcing of gender norms or anything. Um, and where. <laughs> There are subcultures like that that is inevitably going to flourish while they didn't have the language that we have now. So which is another reason why it didn't survive through like the text we, we can read now. It's still like I, be I believe that it's there in many, many freak centered social movements. I think you're right. I am only somebody who you know, has, has read, read a bit of history, but you know, if anybody listening to this podcast, uh, has, 
has some instances of that. Um, or like, I know that there are queer historians out there, um, but I've never seen one who specifically studies radical tradition. And I would love to hear that because I think that those were maybe the the some of the biggest hotbeds of of gay stuff going on back then. I know that there was a lot of um, I've read like throwaway lines from a hundred years ago that talk about like, well, if you go hang out with the anarchists, that's where you can find the the homosexuals and the men who like dressing as women. I don't remember exactly how they phrased all of it, but I actually really like that it distinguished between like uh, basically trans and gay in the in the way it described it. And it, it made me really mm-hmm. happy. Again, it was like a throwaway line I read once in like a history of queer anarchism or something. Um, but it but it was written, you know, 100 years ago. It was like someone just being like, oh, if you want to find the gays, just go over and hang out at the anarchist club or whatever, you know, um, which, of course, you know, maybe if I came from a different ideological background, I would find that somewhere else also. But it, it still makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Speaking of books, we're not talking about books, but this is what we're going to talk about now. We're going to talk about books because the nihilists eventually got their name. And how did the nihilists get their name? They got it from a book, a book called Fathers and Sons, written by Ivan Turgenev, whose name I should have looked up before I started recording, but I didn't. I looked up several of the other names. And books were like really fucking important. It's like hard to overstate how important books were uh, culturally at the time, right? Because there weren't as many other mediums going on. And some people actually claim that Turgenev's earlier collection of short stories called Sportsman Sketches is what convinced Alexander II to free the serfs. But the fathers and sons, oh. I know, right? Like He influenced the czar, the nihilists, and Cat Stevens 100 <laughs> years later. Um, okay, so Fathers and Sons is a, is a book about generation gap. And it's like basically like millennials versus boomers, the book, which actually really tracks. I kind of like this because... That makes millennials the disaffected students and then who like kind of start some fires here and there. And then Gen Z is going to like really kick stuff up a notch. Um, And so I'm excited about this read, whether or not it whether or not it's true, just interject some hope into the conversation, you know. And okay, so in this book, there's a young nihilist named Bazaroff and he calls himself a nihilist. And it's the first time that that's where the name comes from. Basically, he's not the main character even, but he's the main character, even though he's. He's like the one that the author clearly is paying the most attention to. Where, where the name or the, or the word? So nihilism, nihilism was a word before that. Right? Yes, but again, it was like really rarely used. Um, it's kind of actually like the history of the word anarchism, where until uh, Proudhon was like, "I am an anarchist," it was just like kind of thrown around like to be mean uh, for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Bazarov is basically describing his attitude as nihilism and his like whole thing is that he's like, I refuse sentimentality and blah, blah, blah. And okay, to be real, like the book is kind of dumb because his big problem is that he falls in love and he's like, Oh no, love is. Oh, that's your, (laughs) that's your first mistake. Yeah. He, he's like, this is icky. It complicates my feelings of true nihilism and whatever bullshit I believe in. And so uh, he doesn't even like hook up with her or anything, but he just like falls in love and he gets a crush and it's enough to like throw him into torment, which I want to laugh at. But then I remember that I was young once too. and You know, that happens. Um, and so anyway, Bazarov, spoiler alert, he uh, he's like doing a science because he's a very serious science nihilist and he he's doing an autopsy and then he gets blood poisoning and then he dies. And on his deathbed, the girl he likes, Bazarov! You know, 
on his deathbed, the girl he <laughs> likes kisses him on the forehead, which is, you know, kind of a thing because the Niles were fucking prudes. But ooh, ooh, ooh la la, yeah. <laughs> hubba hubba. And then, but but Turgenev wasn't a nihilist when he wrote this book, and so the nihilists were a little bit like. I don't know how I feel about this representation, but then tons of people joined their movement in, in 1862 after this thing. Hmm. And so they were like, we have come around on it and we accept this book. Um, <laughs> and uh, we don't, we didn't hate it. And therefore that's as good as liking it. Yeah, basically uh, they, they decided to roll with it and give him a pass. And, um, and apparently Turgenev was like really upset that uh, people thought he didn't like Bazarov, uh, apparently Kropotkin and the anarchist that I will talk about sometimes, he said to him because Kropotkin was friends with him. He said, "I like Bazarov, but it seems like you didn't love him." And Turgenev said, "No, I, I I loved him. It it made me cry to to end the book with his death." And in fact, Turgenev, uh, for the rest of his life, he kept a diary as if he was Bazarov, the nihilist, and he would respond to current events in his own journal as Bazarov instead of as himself. Whoa, in his in his journal. Yeah, like he didn't publish it anywhere. He just he like he I think he understood Whoa. nihilism as a actually it's kind of interesting. It's kind of the way I understand nihilism. It's a I, I'm I'm probably not a nihilist, but I'm very sympathetic and I, I really like having mm. that lens available to me. Um and so I think that he did that's my my guess is that he liked having that lens available to him. Um it, wow, he just LARP LARPed his way through the rest of his life as a nihilist. Yeah, totally. <laughs> But but cool. secret, a secret nihilist, cool. a secret LARPing. I love that. Though I understand a nihilist as somebody who understands love very deeply. I know, exactly. Like, but, but this is, yeah. they were new to it, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah, they're just, get, they're just getting off the runway. Yeah. And also nihilism is a nonsense word. Yeah. Um, okay, and then another random anecdote about Turgenev. He had his portrait taken by this guy named Felix Nadar, who I'm going to talk about in future episodes, I'm certain, who is basically the photographer who took all of the pictures of all of the random revolutionaries. If you ever see a picture of like a random important person in the 19th century, especially revolutionaries, it was probably taken by this guy. I've literally wondered this before. I'm like, this motherfucker didn't have money to get his portrait taken. What's going on? So there was like this French hipster photographer named Nadar who loved all this stuff and took pictures of it. He also defended the Paris commune with a hot air balloon and he invented, he invented <laughs> airmail because airmail was invented by a photographer radical who wanted to get letters out of the besieged Paris commune. And he also invented, he took the first aerial photography. He took the first aerial photos in a hot air balloon. Um, and so is there an aerial photo of the Paris Commune? I, I actually don't know the answer to that, but I will know the answer to that by the time that you listeners are listening to this because I will be doing an episode about the Paris Commune. I Google this later. <laughs> and okay, so that's Fathers and Sons. And that was like a very, very important book. But the the more important book that actually hasn't come through history as much, but was far more important to the nihilists themselves that comes from the nihilist movement itself is a book called What is to be Done by Nikolai Chernyshevsky. And oh who could oh, who could that be? Well, never heard of He it. was an author who was a nihilist and he actually wrote the book from his prison cell. Uh he was in prison for organizing with the Neuroniks, which I'll I'll talk about at some point. And uh, he was locked up in Fortress of St. Peter and St. Paul, the cool kid prison I was talking about. Um and incidentally Kropotkin 10 years later is the first kid who was too cool for school and broke out of the cool kids prison. He sure, he sure. <laughs> Santa in his sleigh got out and went to a yeah 
I'm sure. Well, I won't. I won't. I won't blow the story. I'm sure you'll do an episode about Kropotkin. Yeah, eventually. Um, okay, so the book "What Is to Be Done" gets its title from the Bible, which is sort of interesting with the obsessive nihilism um, or people's presumptions about nihilism. It actually it gets it from Luke three ten, which is "What should we do then?" The crowd asked. John answered, "Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same." Um, which is kind of a handy take if you're ever talking to like one of those fake Christians who thinks that Christianity means capitalism. The Bible fucking slaps sometimes. Yeah, it, it's like, like it's I know uneven. It's an unpopular take. Like, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, Jesus kicking the shit out of money lenders. Yeah. Okay, and then the other thing about what is to be done, the book, is you have to be careful not to confuse it with that the 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 other Russian book by Tolstoy called what is to be done or that Russian political pamphlet by Lenin, which is called what is to be done. Um, <laughs> it, was same, it was the same guy all three times. <laughs> well, okay. To be fair to Tolstoy, his title is actually slightly different in Russian. Um, but Lenin just like straight up was like, it's like, if I was like, man, I love the book, the dispossessed. I'm going to write a pamphlet about something completely different and how I should be in charge of everything. And I'm going to call that book, the dispossessed. I do like that um, in whenever I got mail orders, I was including this zine for a while that I really liked. That was after the George Floyd uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, someone wrote how it might should be done. Yeah, um, it's quite, quite good. Big, yeah. big fan of that one. Yeah, I think that at Mo- this point it's a tradition, update. you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Continuing um, the tradition 100 years after the last one. Yeah, I know of at least. So the, the first one, Chernyshevsky, is about uh, it's about nihilist women who start sewing cooperatives. They're basically like, oh, we should do this in order to, you know, this is how we challenge uh, the society we're in. And because once again, fashion is actually part of the resistance movement, but that gets constantly ignored. Um, but that said, Chernyshevsky was also ignoring nihilist fashion himself because he didn't actually understand it really. Um, and his characters didn't make clothes for nihilists. They made like fancy clothes for rich people. Uh, and there was a side character in that book named Rakhmatov, whose name I do not know how to pronounce. And this is the guy that everyone gets obsessed with instead of, um, you know, who they should be obsessed with, which is anyway, whatever. He's like this total um, self-negating revolutionary saint. He sleeps on a bed of nails. He only eats black bread and steak. He lifts weights and hauls boats around and he doesn't drink or fuck. And Lenin copied the weightlifting thing. Uh, Nietzscheev is an asshole I'm going to talk about later. Uh, slept on a bed of nails. Nikolai Ashutin, the cousin of the assassin, the guy, the guy who got uh, mock executed earlier, he did the boat hauling thing. And the Russian-American anarchist Alexander Berkman used the pseudonym Rakhmatov when he was conspiring to shoot industrialist Henry Clay Frick. So very influential. And then Chernyshevsky himself got mock executed. It was like the style of the time, I guess, and sent to sentenced to hard labor. And then the almost on talking about the books, the other important thing that happened with the nihilists in books is that Dostoevsky hated the nihilists and he spent his entire career writing novels about how much he hated them he sure did that's like all he did is he wrote he he, there's a genre called the anti-nihilist novel and it's him it's basically him um which is enough about books (laughs) no let's keep going loudly (laughs) about books yeah should make an entertaining podcast (laughs) i mean a lot of the stories about nihilism just talk about those books, but I they they actually are 
they're important enough that they they need to be included. Um, and which is kind of bringing us back around to the mid 1860s when we get our our guy we started this story with. And this is probably the where we're going to end on today. We're going to talk more about organization and hell because this is kind of where it switches over, it switches gears. And so we're going to talk first really quickly about my least favorite nihilist who's named Ivan. Almost everyone in this story is named Ivan if they're not named Vera. Uh, Ivan Kudyakov. Uh, and I should like him. He's a, he's a nihilist. He was a nihilist and a folklorist, but he totally sucked. Uh, or maybe the book I read about him was reactionary garbage because it's so hard to tell. Um, okay, as a kid, Ivan liked to pull on horses' tails. He just liked, liked annoying horses. Um, can you guess how that went for him? He got kicked in the head? He got kicked in the nuts. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he got that's, kicked in the nuts. That's just classic comedy right there. I don't care who you are. <laughs> he got kicked so hard in the nuts, he never reached physical maturity. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's sad. Or... But... It's all transphobic shit written by reactionaries who didn't like him. Yeah. I don't know because he couldn't, he had a high pitched voice and he couldn't grow a beard. Um, hey, so I know plenty of people like that and they didn't, and they didn't pull on no horse's tails. Yeah. Um, and then he, but he, and in his own memoir, I had trouble interpreting it. Either he masturbated constantly or he never masturbated. I think he never masturbated and he hated everyone who masturbated. Does he talk about pulling horses' tails in his own memoir? Is it this is self? I don't know. Admitted I, thing. I know. Okay. I I only read the book about him. I didn't read the book by him. Um, and I I kind of he's not a quite an important enough character, but he's just an interesting. I don't know. Just an okay. interesting little foil. Yeah. Somebody who grows up uh, pulling horses' tails and and then. fucks up nihilism a little bit anyway here's your sign yeah he kind of just embarrasses nihilism really he actually doesn't have that big of an impact but he's an example of an embarrassing nihilist so i feel like it's important to to balance this out because i like most of these nihilists a lot um okay so ivan was a folklorist but he kept not being allowed to do folklorism because basically the authorities were like whoa 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 you could spread revolutionary propaganda through folklore which rules and is a good idea um and he also got refused jobs because of his clothes, I think because of his nihilist outfit. And so he like, and he hung out with the St. Petersburg crew of nihilists. So like, so far, so good. Right. But then he took on a research assistant, a young woman and married her. And then there's a problem. She wanted to fuck all of the time. And he liked to complain about how much she wanted to fuck. I think it had to do with how bourgeois Ugh. she was that she wanted to fuck. He constantly complained about it, probably more often than she complained about wanting to fuck. The and bourgeois tendency known as horny. I know, exactly. And he also, she wasn't a very good research assistant after they got married because she just wanted to fuck all the time. Um, so the original take my wife please guy is this fucking Russian nihilist. <laughs> <laughs> he fucking, he goes on a trip abroad. At first he tries to go without her and she's like, oh, I'm coming. And then he's like, okay. So he tries to go home without her and he tries to ditch her. And there's something going on I don't understand because even later when he's sent to Siberia, he's like, finally, I can leave my wife. And she's like, I'm coming. And like, he does not deserve her. I don't know enough about her, but he does not deserve this woman. Um, he also wrote a bunch of racist shit against like Jews and Latvians and Germans. And 
really, I'm kind of including him just to include how nihilist could be like really shitty and how counterculture doesn't solve misogyny even when you like claim to be feminist and all that shit. Important um, to include in the cool people who do cool stuff is that sometimes there's a bad apple and it didn't spoil the bunch. Yeah, this time he um the 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 cool thing he did was he he gave um our boy Karakazov the the assassin he gave him the money for the gun. Um, he should have given him money for range time, but he yeah. only gave him money for the gun. Um, a, and also a broken clock. I know. And when he was rounded up, you'll be shocked to know he snitched like crazy. Uh, no, but he made up funny stuff when he confessed, like he made up this secret society in <laughs> Europe that was going to kill all of the rulers of Europe and had been sending him money and like super special secret fancy bombs. Uh, anyway, fuck him. Let's talk about cooler. Yeah. People. It, yeah. He snitched, <laughs> but at least he got a fun tight five out of it. <laughs> um, okay. So organization in hell. The most influential member was this guy, Nikolai Shutin. He was the cousin. Uh, he gets mock executed, etc. And they do a bunch of cool stuff. One of the things they do is in 1864, organization helps a Polish socialist named Jaroslav Dombrowski escape transport to Siberia. He's been arrested as part of this Polish rebellion in 1863 that I wish I had time to go into, but do not. Uh, and this guy was cool to get more Paris commune ties. This guy, he ends up in Paris after he escapes, after they bust him out. And when the Paris Commune happens, he's the only one who has any like, or he has the most military training. So he becomes the the commander of all of the armed forces of the Paris Commune, which means he negotiates the surrender. So everyone thinks he's a sellout. And then he dies of the wounds that he got on the barricades. And he's like, you think I'm a sellout now? Like literally his last words were, do they still say I'm a traitor? I just like all the weird tiny characters. I'm not tiny. This guy lived an amazing life, but. I do love the, like, like nothing to learn from it, but I loved the characters who were like, who had a bit of moral compromise that was able to be passed down through to us yeah. later on where they still struggle with that later. Last time, like as a, as a quick aside, like I, um, last time I was in uh gay Paris, I went to the, to the cemetery where some people from the, the Paris Commune are, and also Jim Jim Morrison and Oscar Wilde, and there was a bu- bunch of fucking freaks that shit uh, wandering around. And I'm like, I know what you're here for. Um, <laughs> and I went up to the little wall that they had um, for the Paris Commune, and I had, and I had like a, a little, a little, a, a sweet little moment. Um, and then I started walking away, and it, and this like super spiky punk mm-hmm. uh, with a huge backpack walks up to the wall and. He pulls this like half full 40 out of his or like so, equivalent, yeah, what, something what uh, some a large amount of alcohol that he downs in front of the wall and he smashes the glass in front of it. And then and he and he like walks away. And I'm like, Fuck. we don't speak the same language, but dude, let's hang out. <laughs> okay, so. I hope he's doing well, whoever he is. Yeah. Organization in hell. Organization, we kind of talked about them at the beginning. Um, and basically, they're important now because they basically end the period of foundational nihilism, at least as I've read. And, you know, the suicidally depressed Karakazov goes and tries to kill the czar, says nothing, nothing. He only took one shot with a two-barreled gun. And then the the white terror begins. A guy with the nickname Hanger Muravizov 
gets put in charge of the repression. Two radical journals are shut down. A lot of the educational reforms are walked back. Some of the educational reforms got walked back earlier when people were setting fires too. And this kind of ends nihilist fashion in a mainstream way, apparently almost overnight. Men cut their hair. Women grew theirs out. Some do it because they're done with the whole thing and just want to go back to their lives. And some do it because they figure, look, if I'm going to keep trying to kill motherfuckers, I should blend into the crowd a little better. Let's go underground. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we're going to end it for today. Uh, when we come back, it's bombs time and hippies back to the land time. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Finally, we get to the round cartoon bomb Round era. cartoon bomb time and the hippies back to the land time. So, so Io, how are you feeling about these nihilists? Oh, big fan. Uh, uh, at this point, um, reminds me of a lot, a lot of my buddies and, <laughs> and I can't help but, but root for them. All the, all the flaws, warts and all, I must, I must root for them. Um, and I'm sure it'll, I'm sure that the next episode will get me put on some sort of list for how hard I root for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that might be true. Io, do you have anything you want to plug before we head out? Yeah, I have a Twitter and an Instagram, and they are uh, bum lung, bum like the thing that doesn't work, and lung like the thing that works sometimes, if you're me. and uh, I have I have a store. I sell prints and I make comics and uh, stuff like that. It's also under the same name. Awesome, Margaret. Uh, where can people follow you? Well, I have a I have a new podcast out that people can listen to. It's called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm on Twitter at Magpie Killjoy and I'm on Instagram at Margaret Killjoy. And if you follow me on Instagram, I will probably just talk about how much I love my dog and then have pictures and videos of me playing piano. But on Instagram. No, the other one, Twitter. That's where I'm pick fights and I'm smart. There's also <laughs> dog pictures on that one though. Oh, it's a great a great dog. Everybody, you gotta see this dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't recommend Margaret's dog. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And then and then we'll be back with part two on Wednesday. Yeah. Cool and good. Yay. We can say cool and good unironically in the show finally. People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. 
Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else.